Good evening, my friends. Thank you for joining me for another semester of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies. I really appreciate your support. Tonight, we're going to begin a 16-week series on a topic that really takes us to the root of what the Restoration School of Biblical Studies is all about. Reformation and Restoration. You might notice that I did not say Reformation to Restoration. I'll explain that in a moment. Reformation and Restoration. Last semester, we completed a 16-week journey through the complicated, disturbing similarities between Catholicism and the Antichrist. And in the process, we summarized a lot of material that has to do with their position. And we covered material that, although they would like for me to have gone back into church history and given them specific dates and all those kind of things, I didn't do because I wasn't interested. What I'm interested in is going to what God has to say with regards to false teaching, comparing this particular organization, this movement, to what God says is accurate and true and declaring them a false teacher or false teachers. And I think we made it pretty clear in the last 16 weeks that that's exactly what Catholicism is. Now, we're not going to move completely past that this evening. We're going to actually start there because I want to show you where the roots of Reformationism comes from. And then I want to talk about restoration that has been happening throughout the the entire timeline. But uh, again, thank you for joining me. As you know, we always start off each uh, lesson by offering five questions. These are largely for the School of Biblical Studies students, but anybody out there who's just watching on their own, studying on their own, feel free to use them to expand your study, to help help guide you through this particular uh, lesson and how I've organized it. Perhaps that's a, a good way of saying that. And so study on your own, look at this material, make your own conclusions. That's certainly a principle that is alive and well with regards to restoration mentality. All right, did you screenshot that? Here we go. All right. As we open, I want to begin at, by way of introduction. I want to begin with a brief discussion of the timeline of of the Lord's Church. Now, I could start all the way back in the Old Testament, because certainly it started back in the Old Testament. And certainly the the opening moments uh, of preparation for what would eventually take place under the the direction of the, the Christ, the Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus himself, as he sets up his church, all of those things in the Old Testament are certainly important. But we most definitely can date the beginning of the church to that moment that Jesus himself predicted would happen, that the Holy Spirit will come down upon you. That takes place on the day of Pentecost, and the, the Lord's church begins. It, in the opening days, uh, we, we, we find that they, they are 3,000 plus strong. Uh, so we're, we're having great baptisms and, and, and uh, moments of conviction, and, and great things are happening. When we get, however, to the discussion of Reformation and Restoration, we begin to understand the history of the church is really about a process, not a date. Thus, you're not going to hear me talk about dates tonight. We're not going to deal with a lot of the things that I was required to memorize when I was in college for my Bible degree, etc. not saying they aren't necessarily important, but I do think that they distract us somewhat. And the reason I say that is because when we begin to micromanage the timeline and we begin to look at all these specific dates and things, we, we, we tend to overlook the process that's actually happening here. 
And by giving it a specific date, we, we, we find ourselves distracted from the appreciation of what needs to happen with regards to our heart and uh, the, the many moving parts that are taking place to bring us to this spot. For instance, tonight we'll talk about Martin Luther, and everybody like for me to give a date to Martin Luther when he tacks his 95 thesis to the, to the doorway, but I'm not even going to give you a date on that because I don't want you to get distracted. What I want you to see is a process that is taking place here, and in that process it's going to emphasize the need for us to go back to restoring the New Testament pattern. Now, before I go there, I want you to see, let's see, right here, boom. Uh, church history it is a process, not a date. I just mentioned that, but I want you to, that's going to pop up on most of our screens here, because I don't want you to miss that. Those of you who were with me last semester, you might recall I had that one little inset that kind of stayed with us all the way through with regards to the rules of uh, making sure that you refer to Scripture if you want to be credible, etc. Well, this right here, this is going to be one of those insets you're going to see a lot throughout the semester, because I believe this is very, very true and important for us to recognize. Instead of getting caught up in specific names of church his, uh, people in church history, specific dates and, and events of that kind, let's look at the process that's actually taking place and compare it to what God said would need to take place and what we are trying to accomplish. Now, let's go up here to uh, Jude chapter 1. There's only one chapter, but as you, as you look at this passage, it opens the discussion quite well. Notice Jude is going to say, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith. I wonder why he felt it necessary. Is it possible that even in the days of Jude, they had stopped contending? They had kind of settled in? They're no longer fighting the good fight of keeping the faith? That was once, to, uh, uh, once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were de designed, or excuse me, designated, unnoticed, I'm in trouble reading, designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus. Notice that last word, Christ. Ties directly into the previous series, Catholicism and the Antichrist. So even in the first century, Jude is making these this prediction that there are folks that are going need to be reminded to be to contend for the faith because there are other folks who are fighting against keeping the Lord's church as the Lord's church. They're antichrist in nature. All right, let's add to our timeline. This is where it's going to get up going up towards my face here in a moment. You're not going to see my face, which is probably a good thing. The first thing that really happens out the gate, and you can almost date this back to the to the first days of the church. Uh, uh, in fact, you can if you if you look at it very carefully. But the first thing that's going to happen after the Lord establishes His church is we're going to find apostasy. I suppose it's not unlike the opening days of human creation with regards to Adam and Eve. You know, how, I don't know how long they were into the process until they went to the tree and they're into apostasy. They're, they're dividing, they're, they're thinking they're bigger than God and better than God, whatever it may be. Interestingly enough, however, Paul is going to write to the church at Colossae. He's going to actually say to them that you need to be aware because this is already here. It's already on the horizon. When you get to John's writings, for instance, he's going to say, that uh, the Antichrist is already among us. You get to Peter's writing. Peter himself is going to warn us about the last days that are already upon us. But anyhow, back to Colossians. Uh, if 
if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Why are you putting these carnal regulations upon yourself, these limitations of regulations upon yourself? Not unlike what you see in Catholicism with regards to all their crazy mechanisms that they've gotten, etc., etc. Why? He goes on to say, Spirit, uh, verse 21. Here's the example of the three things he uses to summarize that idea of crazy regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings. Now I want you to see what he says in verse 23 because it's so very important. As he makes this prediction about what's going to come. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Is that not indicative of Catholicism? Self-made Focus on me. Focus on my long robe. Focus on my silly hat. Focus on the gold-plated everything I got. Not only self-made religion, but he's going to say they're promoting asceticism and severity to the body. Again, not unlike what you see in Catholicism with regards to denying things such as, for instance, being allowed uh, to, to marry. Um, even even when you, it comes to Lent, and some of the things that they demand that are not of God, God never told us that we had to, to give up those things during their, quote, Lent setting. Uh, when, when you recognize, you know, the, thing, the things they're not allowed to eat during certain periods of time, etc., etc. Et and certainly if you go back in the history of, the, of Catholicism, you can begin to see even more graphic examples of a self-made religion that practiced asceticism, that is, severity to the body. I, in the earlier lessons, I, I referenced Gnosticism, and I believe that Catholicism really is an outgrowth of Gnosticism, first century Gnosticism. But perhaps the word asceticism would help us to relate more fully. Gnosticism really carries two, with it two primary areas. Gnosticism comes from the, the Greek word that for gnosis, uh, the idea to know, has special knowledge. But it also was associated with the idea of punishing yourself or denying the flesh. Asceticism is more directly related, as far as the definition, is more directly related to that idea or that concept. And that's what you see being predicted here by Paul to the church at Colossae, that there's going to be this time when we're going to have these false teachers who are going to be promoting their self-made religion that's full of asceticism and severity to the body. I thought you might be interested in seeing the English definition of asceticism there, the practice of strict self-denial as a measure of personal and especially spiritual discipline. That references the idea of Catholicism quite directly. What The major reason that they will forbid their priests from marrying is because they believe that marriage will become a distraction to them, that they are somehow on a higher level, a higher plane, and a, an elevated priesthood because they have denied themselves the opportunity to be married. And then you, you read what Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus in his direct commands to make sure that all the bishops are married, and you ask yourself, how can they do that? I'll tell you how they do it, because it's antichrist in nature. But I want you again, I need you to notice this right here. The process that we're involved in. I haven't, I haven't mentioned a date yet. We're in a process. And the first step of that process is to go off into apostasy. And that's what you have predicted in Colossians 2 and many other passages. And that's what happens from the opening days of the church. They're struggling with the 
urge to go off away from God into apostasy. Well, as you, and here's where you're going to lose my face, which is a good thing. <laughs> see there? As you continue to expand the timeline, you see that the process that's taking place here is going to expand itself into not just apostasy, but outright Catholicism. So at some point, we're going to actually find that they're going to give a name to this apostasy, and we're going to call it Catholicism. And Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, Paul himself predicts a time in the process that's going to take place such as this. Pay careful attention, Paul says to the elders of the church at Ephesus. He says, pay, pay uh, careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, sparing not the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men. And notice what's, what these men are going to do. Speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Can you see that picture right there? Let's see, right there. Can you see that? Is that not like a full-color illustration of what Paul says here in Acts chapter 20? Now, that picture is taken, obviously, many years after Acts chapter 20 was written, but it's indicative of the history of Catholicism and what Catholicism has done. Catholicism, as it expanded the apostasy, Catholicism takes us to a level of selfish desires to draw others to ourselves. And so you got this guy in this long dress robe being held out, so I guess so he looks extra important, with the, the funny hat and the scepter in front of him and all the people behind him, and you know, etc., etc. Catholicism is the natural outcome of the continuation of apostasy. In fact, I would suggest to you it's, it is just the continuation of apostasy. It's just that by this time, we somebody decided to put a name to it. All right? And Catholicism continues to reign on the planet through the power of the Antichrist, I believe. And uh, what do they have? 1.3 billion adherents? It's, you know, it's, they got a lot of folks who are buying into the falsehoods of these men who have drawn disciples after themselves with their flowing gowns, silly hats, and scepters. Okay? So you, you continue to see as the process continued to work. One of the next major watersheds, if you will, in the process of apostasy and Catholicism being the name of that apostasy is eventually some folks are going to get their head together and they're going to say, this isn't right. And there's so many things that are going on here. And people are being cheated out of their money under the guise that they could get their loved ones purchased a path out of purgatory. And we're, we're, by, we're building all these fancy cathedrals, and yet people are starving to death. And, 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 and people began to really think for themselves, which is something that the Catholic hierarchy did not want to have happen. It's why you hear the stories about the Bibles being chained to the pulpit. It's why you know that individuals who translated the Bible into other languages were actually burned at the stake. Because the Catholic hierarchy, in its glitz of, of apostasy, wants to keep a stranglehold on the people. And so if they can speak a special language, Latin, that a lot of folks don't even understand, and keep the Bible 
in that language so that the rest of the world can't even read it for themselves, then they maintain this stranglehold on the population and they can tell them what they're supposed to believe. And in the process, they develop a religion that's absolutely upside down and antichrist in nature. But eventually some folks said, I don't think this is right. And so they began to push back. Now you see that picture there in the middle. That That's a, a rendering of uh, Martin Luther nailing his 95 Theses to the door. And a lot of folks, and I, it happened to me when I was in college, a lot of folks would like to date the Reformation movement to that moment. A lot of folks refer to Martin Luther as the father of the Reformation movement. But the fact of the matter is, there have been folks long before Martin Luther, there were folks who were struggling with the perversion of Catholicism. Long before this. But the real problem is that Martin Luther and all those who came before and all those who come after, they weren't really seeking what they needed to seek. And that is, they weren't really trying to take and go back to what God said, they were just trying to refine, to tweak what had already been concocted by mankind and the doctrines of men, etc. And there were just a few of them, 95 for Martin, uh, but there were, there, were, there were things that they just were uncomfortable with. And so they began to try to tweak the church back to what would make them comfortable. You see the problem? Matthew 15, 9, the Lord would predict uh, this uh, with regards to his time, and certainly this plays out in, in the timeline that's before us as well. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. One of the big mistakes that Luther made, and those before him and after are making, is that they're not really pursuing the commandments of God. They're not trying to purify. They're not trying to go back all the way. They want to keep their comfort zones with regards to cathedrals and the, the various processes that were taking place that men had come up with and special stations within the church and elitist priesthood, uh, elitist priesthoods, you know, etc. There are certain things they liked, you know. They were comfortable with that. It's all the way it's always been. And so their motives really weren't to go back and discover what God really wanted. Their motives were simply to tweak it back to a position where they would be comfortable. And so the Reformation movement, again, do you see church history is a process, not a date. We continue to move through this process, which is largely a, de a departure from, from the will of God under Catholicism. And then you've got reformers who are saying, yeah, but you know, I'm really uncomfortable. We need, we need to take it back at least partially to what God desires. And it's just not where it needs to be. Which leads us, of course, to this. Then we talk about the Restoration Movement. And again, I want you to notice that I do not name this Reformation then or after the Reformation comes the Restoration. I don't want to put that timeline there because, as you can see from all the white arrows pointing down, the Restoration Movement has been moving since the beginning. Since the opening days of the church, even before this, but you go to Acts chapter 15, and there's some folks who are teaching that in order for Gentiles to be saved, they got to first become a Jew. So Je Je Acts chapter 15, we have a, a big meeting of, of a lot of folks and inspired individuals come together, and they come to this conclusion. No, you don't have to become a Jew to become a, a Christian. You don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. 
And so even in Acts 15, you, you, you see there needs to be a restoration process. And it was going on long before this took place. The reason I feel like that this diagram is so important is because when I was taught this timeline in college, I was taught that the restoration movement began with men such as a Thomas Campbell, Alexander Campbell, Raccoon John Smith, etc. And although those individuals are unique and, and it's interesting to read about them, etc., they aren't inspired, and they did not begin the restoration movement. The restoration movement began the first time an individual decided that they were going to do something other than what the inspired record said to do. And I'll be honest with you, even Peter had to succumb to the restoration process. You remember, Paul will say, I had to, I had to confront him to his face because of his hypocrisy. Even Peter had to succumb to the restoration process. So the restoration movement started moments after the church began, and people began to be intrigued with the possibility of going off in a direction other than what Jesus wanted them to go in. Again, you see, church history is a process, not a date. Now, I want to take you to that, that picture up there in the top left-hand corner. If you're going to compare Reformation to Restoration, and you'll notice that I've capitalized Reform and Restore, because I want you to see the difference between these two movements, and it's very important that you recognize this. In order to understand it, you might consider what a process that perhaps you've done for yourself. You've got an old piece of furniture, and you want to strip it down so that you can go back to the original wood. And I don't know what, this looks more like a porch than a piece of furniture, but I don't know what they're doing here, but uh, I don't know what the what they're trying to strip down here. But I, I want you to notice that there's at least three parts to what you have in front of you. You got a gray paint that they have decided that that's not really what we want. That's kind of like Catholicism, okay? And then they, they've got this white paint, and I've got the red arrow coming down there from Reformation. That's what the reformers felt like. We wanted to go back. I, I didn't really like gray. I like white. So they decided, let's let's just bring the porch back to white, the color of white. But the real process that needs to be in place here is not gray and not white. It's restore. And you'll notice that upper arrow there in the center pointing to the, the naked wood, taking it back to the original. That's the process. That's what we need to be driving to bring to our value system. Going back to what God wants. God is going to say, Jesus is actually going to record with regards to end times things, that there will be folks in the last days who are going to say, or at, at judgment, they're going to say, but Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? In your name do this, that, and the other. And um, Jesus is, is going to say, it's going to be declared to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you evildoers. The key to that passage is actually the verse prior to it, where it says that the reason these folks are rejected is not because they did good stuff, not because they did stuff that they thought they needed to do. The reason they're rejected is because they didn't do what God wanted them to do. In other words, they were majoring in the gray or the white paint, but they weren't majoring in the naked wood, getting it back to the original condition. So, by way of review then, as you see this timeline play out in front of you without dates, because I don't want you to get distracted by that. I just want you to see the process. Maybe that's what I ought to call it. As you see the process that plays out in front of you, <coughs> you will notice that the arrow from Catholicism 
just continues out into the abyss. And the arrow for Reformation continues out into the abyss because they haven't decided to take it back to the, where they, the original. It's only those white arrows that are pointing down back into, merging back into the Lord's church, repenting coming back to his priorities, regardless of what I think of them, regardless of whether or not I like them. I want you to understand that the only way for this process to work is for God to explain himself. Solo, sola, subscriptura, as they would say it. It's a, it's a Catholic phrase, really, um, that because Martin Luther was one of the most famous Catholics, even though they wouldn't claim him as such. That's where he's, he started, guys. Yes, Martin Luther was a Catholic. This whole idea of sola scriptura is Bible only. That we need to go back to the scriptures. Now, I'm going to give Martin Luther a little bit of credit here because that was a large part of his 95 theses that he taxed to the door. That we need to go back to scripture. Let God speak for himself. Problem was, Martin Luther didn't do that. Martin Luther said, God's allowed to speak to himself as long as I am still comfortable with how we're tweaking this. You and I need to get off the throne and get out of our comfort zone and say, it doesn't matter what Martin Luther wanted, it doesn't matter what John Calvin wanted, it doesn't matter what the Pope wanted, it doesn't matter what Sonny Childs wants. We need to go back to what does God want, and the only way to discover that is for us to go back to what he said and then let him interpret himself which will be a very big part to this series towards the conclusion. So, as you see the process unveil in front of you here, understand that this is where we want to go. First of all, I want to talk to you about the Reformation process that was incomplete. It, did, it never had a goal to be where it needed to be. And yet it reigns today, Calvinism specifically, as it reigns among those who call themselves Christians today, those principles which never were intended to go back to God, only were intended to tweak it back to a level that Calvin or Luther was comfortable with. And then at the conclusion of this series, we're going to go into the very, very important principles of, so how do we restore? What does that mean to restore? How do we allow God to speak for himself and then to interpret himself on top of that? How does that take place? So I hope that you'll stay with me for this series. I think it's going to be a good one. I appreciate you so very much for uh, tuning in to be a part of it. Here are those five questions that we opened up with and uh, tried to cover as we move through it. If, through it. if I didn't uh, cover it, I ask you to study on your own and give me the right answers if you, when the final test comes up. Thank you so much for joining me. I love you. This is Sonny Chow saying, be there, Matthew 16, 26.